Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr Kate Steele. And I'm Dr Kate McCrossan. And today's episode is Sweet Child of Mine, where we take a look at a recently published trial in JAMA Paediatrics, which examines a possible association between labour epidurals and autism. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. The study we're discussing today is super relevant for our practice in anaesthesia as it has gained quite a bit of media attention and it's likely that our patients will ask questions about it. We will link to the article in our show notes. The article in question is titled Association Between Epidural Analgesia During Labour and Risk of Autism Spectrum Disorders in Offspring, published in JAMA Paediatrics on October 12, 2020. We are going to give a huge credit for much of the content of this episode to Dr. Catherine Sturziker, who presented this at a journal club at my hospital and has very generously allowed us to use the work she has already done in interpreting this study. Thank you so much, Catherine, for sharing all of your hard work with us. Within 24 hours of this study being published, the American Society of Anaesthetists and the United Kingdom Royal College of Anaesthetists provided press statements to reassure the public that the study does not show scientific causality. This was followed by ANSCA, and we will go through their statement later in the podcast. This study is an observational retrospective cohort study conducted over eight years, from 2008 to 2015, looking at around 150,000 singleton children born via vaginal delivery in the Kaiser Permanente Health Service in Southern California, with data derived from the electronic medical record. Of interest, children not enrolled in the Kaiser Permanente Southern California Health Plan by one year of age were not included. Covariates included maternal social demographics, comorbidities, maternal obesity, diabetes, preeclampsia, childbirth weight, sex, gestational age and birth defects. Exposure to local anaesthetic via epidural occurred in around 75% of children and these were divided into three groups based on the duration of local anaesthetic exposure where these groups were less than four hours, from four to eight hours or greater than eight hours. The outcome was determined by the Autism Spectrum Disorder or ASD codes on the electronic medical record. Autism spectrum disorder was recorded on the EMR in 1.9% of children in the epidural group and 1.3% of children in the no epidural group, leading to a hazard ratio of 1.37 with a confidence interval of 1.23 to 1.53. The conclusion was, this study suggests that maternal labour epidural analgesia may be associated with increased ASD risk in children. The risk appears to not be directly associated with epidural-related maternal fever. So let's unpack this study. Firstly, the journal. JAMA Paediatrics has an impact factor of 13.9 and it is the highest ranking paediatric journal in the world. It covers international articles, is peer reviewed and is the oldest continuously published paediatric journal in the United States. It is published online weekly and has 2.2 million online visits annually. 
However, it is a paediatrics journal and not an obstetric or obstetric anaesthetic journal, which may have affected which experts performed the peer review prior to publication. With regards to the authors, the first author is a practicing anaesthetist and researcher and the last author is a postdoctoral research scientist and biostatistician, both of whom work at Kaiser Permanente Southern California. Interestingly, the last author has actually been involved with 11 publications looking at maternal associations with autism spectrum disorder, all of which are positive, and include gestational weight gain, maternal hypothyroidism, residential air pollution and hyperemesis gravidarum. So why was this study done? There are a number of justifications in the study, including that the long-term effects of neuraxial anaesthesia on offspring are unknown. However, there was a Cochrane review published in 2018 comparing epidural versus no epidural for labour analgesia, which found no immediate effect on neonatal status. The study also cites a 1998 study showing altered behaviour in rhesus monkeys using bupivacaine during induced labour in doses higher than would occur in humans. The authors also cite two observational studies finding an association between lower segment caesarean section and autism spectrum disorder, but a 2019 meta-analysis found that confounders for the indication for caesarean probably explains this association. So the indicators for this study are a little flimsy in our opinion. Despite this, the authors are correct in that the study is to quote, the first large cohort study looking at the association between labour epidural analgesia and autism spectrum disorder. Revisiting the study design, the cohort population was nearly 150,000 children enrolled in the Kaiser Permanente Southern California Health Plan at one year of age. Exposure information was extracted from procedure notes and pharmacy data on the EMR, including approximating the exposure time to the local anaesthetic. Outcome information was identified by ICD-9 codes or the equivalent Kaiser Permanente codes, with codes from at least two separate visits required for a diagnosis. There were many covariates controlled for, but notably excluding genetic predisposition, paternal history, prenatal history, postnatal history, birth difficulties, or the indication for the epidural. We're going to take Catherine's word that the statistical analysis seems appropriate. It's worth saying, though, that neither of us are particularly good at statistics, but please email us if you have a differing opinion. So on to the results. The study population groups differed in all the covariates that were accounted for. The labour epidural group were younger, had a higher household income, a higher education level, a higher proportion of non-Hispanic whites, more comorbidities, higher BMI, more likely to be nulliparous, more preeclampsia and intrapartum fever, and had a lower birth weight and more birth defects. This raises the possibility that the groups differed in other variables which were not accounted for, which could therefore influence other risk factors for ASD. Enrolment in the Kaiser Permanente Health Plan and the likelihood to follow up with an ASD diagnosis at an early age. As we mentioned earlier, the ASD rate was 1.3% in the no labour epidural group and 1.9% in the labour epidural group, equating to a hazard ratio of 1.37. The conclusion, to quote the study, was, although labour epidural analgesia can effectively block labour pain and pain-related hormonal release and changes, we speculate that its commencement may represent the beginning of a novel maternal and fetal physiology, a new hemostasis, and a dynamic biochemical equilibrium, which encompasses the principles of physiology, endocrinology, immunology, pharmacology and toxicology, epigenetics and psychology. Some mechanisms are transient, but others may be persistent and may affect major body systems. 
The authors also discussed the neurotoxicity of local anaesthetic and maternal immune activation without any positive findings to support these theories. They also conclude, our findings bring a concern for the safety and long-term health of offspring regarding the short-term epidural use for labour pain. Now, this is really a bit of a jump with regards to the actual study and its results. It's hardly enough to prove causality. The study has some strengths, namely a large multi-ethnic cohort, a well-documented exposure and outcome through the electronic medical record of a single integrated healthcare delivery system, and that data being captured prospectively, meaning less recall bias. The authors did acknowledge some limitations, such as being unable to capture the nuances of a wide variety of labour epidural analgesia practices, the age of ASD onset being unknown, and the potential for uncontrolled confounders, and that no causality has actually been directly demonstrated. However, the study also has several weaknesses. It is a retrospective analysis and does not demonstrate causality. No scientifically plausible or confirmed mechanism for causality is discussed in the article or has been discussed in the prior literature. As previously stated, the groups were different in identified characteristics which may not be fully accounted for by covariate analysis, and the groups are more likely to have differed in other ways not accounted for. One of the biggest criticisms of this article has been the exclusion of two of the most obvious co-founders, maternal diagnosis of ASD and a family history on both sides. It is well established that genetics play a huge role in autism. Also excluded were labour complications and length, the presence of fetal distress, APGAR scores and a few other factors. Women experiencing difficult or long labours are much more likely to request epidural anaesthesia. Reading through some of the responses and comments on the JAMA website, we also came across some interesting studies suggesting that pain sensitivity may be higher in children and high-functioning adults with ASD. So mothers with ASD traits may be more likely to choose epidural analgesia. Other potential sources of bias include patient selection because children not enrolled in the health plan at age one were excluded and follow-up ended with the end of the Kaiser Permanente membership. Now, this could exclude children from lower socioeconomic groups as lower socioeconomic status is associated with underdiagnosis of ASD. Those who opt for no epidural could also be less likely to seek medical care for mild forms of autism or seek health care outside of the Kaiser Permanente health plan. Other sources of bias are information bias due to differential outcome misclassification, experimental bias due to non-randomization and non-blinding, the author's interest and positive research finding of maternal factors associated with ASD, and publication bias due to a positive result. Catherine has made a very good point in her analysis that correlation does not prove causation. A causal relationship requires three things. Firstly, empirical association and correlation, which this study does have with regards to an exposed group versus a control group. Secondly, a time order or temporal priority of the independent variable, because we don't know when ASD actually develops. We don't know if the variation in the independent variable, that is the epidural, occurs before the dependent variable, which is the ASD diagnosis. And three, non-spuriousness. An example of spuriousness is that children's increasing shoe size corresponds with academic knowledge, but the third variable that accounts for the association is age. Because the study isn't randomly assigned, non-spuriousness can exist. A correlative relationship is also stronger if a causal mechanism is identified, this did not happen in this study, and a context can be identified in which the effect occurs, which didn't happen either. Catherine cites a great example of correlation, namely that the divorce rate in the US state of Maine correlates with the per capita consumption of margarine. How do we explain that one? 
So finally, how will this study change our practice? Basically, we don't think this study will change our practice. Although knowing that it exists and its limitations will be important to discuss with our patients if they bring it up. When talking with patients, discussion points can be reassurance, the difference between correlation and causation, and that these study results are almost certainly due to residual confounding. The risks of labour without an epidural should also be discussed. As well as several other international anaesthetic organisations and associations, ANSCA has released a statement responding to this study in a joint statement with RANSCOG. To quote, We believe the study does not, in our view, provide credible evidence that epidurals used for pain relief during childbirth cause autism. As a retrospective study, the research paper does not and cannot show a causal relationship between epidurals and autism. Association is not causation, and we hope this study does not create anxiety or alarm. The statement also acknowledges the missing covariates, the exclusion of babies born via caesarean section, and the low levels of drug exposure during a labour epidural. They conclude, there is no need to change current advice or practice regarding the administration of epidural anaesthesia during childbirth. Well, it's been really interesting to break down this study today and reassuring that our current practices are safe. Despite there being no need to change, this study is likely to come up for those of us that treat obstetric patients, and we think it's worth having a good understanding of this study so that we can reassure and educate our patients accordingly. We also have to do another huge shout out to Dr. Catherine Sturzacker, who kindly shared her work with regards to analysing this study. Catherine, thank you so much. So at the end of every episode of Deep Breaths, we talk about what we've learned in anesthesia this week. So Kate, what have you learned in anesthesia this week? Well, something that I think it's really important to reinforce is that if you're doing an anesthetic and you feel like you're out of your depth, it's actually okay to tap out and get someone else to either take over from you or to give you assistance. So the situation that I was in last week actually was that I was allocated to a list which was dealing with patients that had fractured neck of femurs. The first two patients were incredibly incredibly unwell from a cardiac status. One of them had critical aortic stenosis with a valve area of 0.6 centimetres plus pulmonary hypertension. The second patient had your... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Depends on what your definition of fun is. The second patient had a severe hockam. So after stressing about it for 48 hours straight, um, I ended up respectfully tapping out and getting a cardiac anaesthetist to do it. The cardiac anaesthetist that did the case did a fantastic job. um, And I think ultimately it was probably best for all involved that, you know, that I respectfully said this is too much for me and I got someone else who was far better equipped to do a better anaesthetic than I was. Fair enough. So, Kate, what have you learnt this week in anaesthetics? Uh, so, I learnt um, that give blocks time to work, which, you know, we all know, but yeah. um, I had a block day. Uh, my registrar was unwell. I was on my own, so I'm doing all my own blocks. And if you sit there staring at them and asking them every 30 seconds if their <laughs> arm feeling numb, they probably won't say it for a while. So, yeah, look, I've just learnt to do my paperwork skeech out for five to ten minutes and come back and usually the block is very effective. Fair enough. Of course, you know, if, if 45 minutes to an hour passes and your block still isn't working, you might want to accept that it might that be you. That is true. That is and that true. the block actually isn't working. Um, but yes, they're all very happy patients and treating anaesthetists and um, happy days. Yeah. What's that proverb that springs to mind? A watched pot never boils? That's exactly right. <laughs> Thanks for listening along with us today on Deep Breaths. As always, please listen, rate and recommend us to your colleagues. We can be found on most podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and Google. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions for topics, or interviewees, please email us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We respond to every email, and we really appreciate your suggestions. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.